0: The FT.
1: Hello and welcome to World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week calls for an end to austerity in Europe as the Dutch government falls, Britain returns to recession, and a socialist closes in on the French presidency.
2: Politicians, even mainstream politicians, who are just talking about tinkering around the edges, are going to have to deal with an electorate that is increasingly
1: getting grumpy. And as UN monitors conduct a tour of Syria, more violence erupts across the country. So how effective is the outside world's intervention?
3: The really disturbing thing that uh, we, we saw today was real signs of a, an anger and a resentment towards the monitors for, for what people see as a, as a failure to protect them. The
1: eurozone returned to choppier waters this week after the Dutch government fell and the UK delivered worse-than-expected GDP figures. Markets also reacted badly to news that Francois Hollande, the socialist candidate, had won the first round of the French election. Joining me on the line from Brussels is our Bureau Chief there, Peter Spiegel, and in the studio is our Europe News Editor, Ben Hall. Pete, if I could start with you first. I guess the major political development in, in the European Union this week has been the fall of the Dutch government, and it's a kind of a new development to see a, a country that's regarded as one of the more prosperous ones, a A country, also falling foul of austerity politics.
2: Well, it's a risk that, frankly, every Eurozone country is going to fall into. Basically, almost every single country in the single currency, save three, is currently under what's called an excessive de- deficit procedure, which means the European Commission here in Brussels now has more authority to dip into your national budget and say what you can and cannot do. And, you know, it's become incredibly politically controversial in many of these countries. I mean, we saw it first here in Belgium. Uh, because it was Belgium, I'm not sure many people paid attention to it. But Ali Ren, the, the European commissioner in charge of monetary affairs, wrote a letter to the Belgian government within two weeks of it taking power and said, uh, by the way, you have to cut another two billion euros from your budget. It started there. It's moved to Spain, where they've, they've real clash between Madrid and Brussels over, over their deficit targets. We've now seen the Dutch being pulled into this. And, and I'm, I'm, I think the biggest fight is yet to come which could be over the French budget because we're seeing here right now projections that France will also miss its budget targets. What is going to happen when Ali Ren has to write a similar letter to incoming President Hollande or re-elected President Sarkozy and say to one of them you are going to have to cut your budget by billions of euros. It's become a big problem now for almost every single Eurozone country including what's known as the core and I think that's going to go down rather badly in a lot of these political races we're seeing over the next two, three, or four months.
1: So, So, Ben, um, Francois Hollande already positioned himself uh, as the man who's going to campaign against austerity in Europe, who's going to offer an alternative. Do we have any idea what that actually means in reality? Can he rally
0: a sort of anti-austerity drive in Europe? Well, uh, if Hollande is elected president, I don't think he's going to revolutionise Europe and turn it into a sort of haven of uh, Keynesian reflation. But he will shift the terms of the debate. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And he will obviously have a democratic mandate to push what he said he will push for. I think, intriguingly, I think he will encourage other like-minded prime ministers, including Mario Monti of Italy, to join him in saying, look, we should not rush headlong into very, very harsh deficit reduction at a time of private sector deleveraging and very weak growth. But we should also remember that the majority of EU leaders are centre-right, are committed to austerity they have to deal with the European Central Bank and a German government which are super committed to austerity and if they want the German government and the European Central Bank to provide firewalls and other emergency intervention in the Eurozone crisis they can't let taps go and start pumping up public spending again. So actually, when you look at what Hollande is doing, it's actually really quite incremental. He wants just another year to balance the budget uh, over Nicolas Sarkozy. He's talking about a compact for growth, which is essentially about redirecting EU structural funds, giving more resources to the European Investment Bank, raising money on the markets for for public infrastructure in, in the EU. These are possibly important things that would help to generate jobs and demand, but they are not going to transform the eurozone economy.
1: Mm. Um, I must say, whenever I write about debt in Europe, I get letters from European readers saying, you know, you should look a bit closer to home. Britain has a huge budget deficit. And we've had bad economic news in Britain this week with a double dip recession now a reality and still a huge budget deficit. Then there's no, mo, not much sign yet, though, that the Keynesians are winning the argument here in the UK, are they? I mean, they're, they're going to have to push ahead with austerity.
0: I don't think, I mean, obviously, Labour is pushing for greater leeway and, and, and more time for this whole process of fiscal consolidation. But even Labour is arguing for pretty drastic cuts. Uh, it just it believes that the way the government has gone about it is has been probably reckless in the sense that it has sapped too much demand out of the economy. And and, and that's the issue. But we're talking in a way we're talking as in France, as here, we're talking about fairly marginal differences between between the, the parties on these issues. Uh, I in mean, in, in France, for example, Hollande knows that he's going to have a problem with the markets and that he is going to have a big uh, a big austerity drive to pursue whatever he can get out of his eurozone partners in terms of this fiscal compact. Mm. And, and Peter, what's the mood in Brussels? I mean, is it grim determination,
1: confidence? Why are they being quite so hard line? I mean, or is it perhaps because they know that the most important government in Europe, Germany, stands behind them?
2: your finger right on the point there it is the german position here i mean to say that brussels is is, is standing firm i think sort of gets it a little bit backwards Germany and the ECB have insisted on these things, and Brussels has gone along, sometimes reluctantly. There's a lot of sentiment here, frankly, to allow a little bit of give on some of these rules, to allow growth. I mean, the, the, probably the person who's been you know, banging the table loudest on, on growth has been Jose Manuel Barroso, the, the president of the European Commission. He's been arguing this for 18 months. It has been very difficult to get the Germans to listen. You know, there is no crisis in Germany right now, and therefore it is, there's no political impetus in the German political sector to, to, to move on this. That's why I think Hollande is interesting in that regard. Yes, this may be along the margins, but it changes the debate here. It changes the debate. You have suddenly, both with Monty and now with, with, with Hollande, two leaders that could, if Hollande gets elected, really challenge what I like to call the Berlin consensus, You know, the, the consensus that the only way back to growth is through austerity. That will convince the markets, that will lower borrowing rates, and that will, will, will spur investment. There is going to be a challenge to that. It changes the terms of the debate. The other thing I just want to put out there is the voters are suddenly going to have a say in all this. You know, I think you know, the mainstream candidates in France obviously are, are debating around a, a, a rather slim margin of differences. But remember, 30% of the vote in France went to the far left and the far right. You know, Marine Le Pen and, and the far left candidate combined got about 30%. The Dutch election, which are coming up in September, you're going to see similar numbers. Around 30 to 35% is going to go to Gert Wilders in the far right, or the, 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 the New Socialist Party, which has really surged in the polls on a very Euroskeptic campaign platform. We have Greek elections coming up the same day as the, the, the second – Around a French elections again, the two mainstream parties are polling somewhere between thirty-five and forty percent, which means some of these euroskeptic splinter parties are really going to get major positions in the Greek parliament. And then we have the Irish referendum coming up in May as well, which the voters again are going to have to say most directly on what Europe has been doing in regards to austerity and tough budget rules. So I think over the next three, four, five months, we're suddenly going to see. The Eurozone crisis moved from what so was a fiscal crisis last year to much more of a political crisis. Politicians, even mainstream politicians who are just talking about tinkering around the edges, are going to have to deal with an electorate that is increasingly getting grumpy and angry about what's going on here in Brussels. And I think that is, even if they don't get into government, they're going to have effect on the political debate Europe-wide, and, and, and leaders here in Brussels are going to have to deal with that.
1: Peter Spiegel in Brussels and, and Ben Hall here in London, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Peter, in Brussels and also Ben Hall here in London. Let's move to Syria now, where UN observers have been touring the country this week. So what have they achieved given the outbreaks of violence that followed in their wake and the subsequent call by UN Special Envoy Kofi Annan for a 300-strong observer force to be deployed? Joining me on the line now from Syria itself is Michael Peel, one of our correspondents in the region who's with the UN monitors. Michael, could you tell me where you are and what you've seen?
3: Well, um, with uh, a part of the um, monitoring force, which uh, as of yesterday, um, although it's supposed to expand to 300 people, was only 15 strong. Um, so they're out, uh, a group of them in, in three 4x4s uh, uh, touring around the, the south of the country. I think just in a few hours today, you've, you've really seen the the two worlds that uh, exist in, in Syria at, at the moment. I, at the moment, we're in the town of Soweda um, in the south, and the atmosphere is very much loyalist. There are a lot of people who have uh, relatives in the army, uh, and many people say that the town is calm, they see the opposition as a terrorist plot led by uh, countries such as, as, as the Gulf States, It's is very much the, the regime narrative of this crisis. But uh, just a few hours ago, we were in um, the, uh, the massive suburb of Duma, which has been the centre of uh, massive protests and violence all of the way through this, uh, this conflict, and there the situation was incredibly disturbing. Uh, I was there earlier this week um, and there were extraordinary scenes. I arrived with the monitors, the crowds, thousands jammed in the streets and mobbing them, um, an overwhelming crush, and people trying to tell their stories and saying that they were being targeted by government forces which were uh, ringing in the area and that they sent tanks in and they shelled the area and that there were snipers killing people. But then after the monitors left, people in Duma said that the area had come under attack, had come under heavy fire. Uh, I, I interviewed someone on Skype, and I could certainly hear what sounded like a series of explosions in the background. But the really disturbing thing that uh, we, we saw today was real signs of a, an, an anger and a resentment towards the monitors for, for what people see as a, as a failure to protect them, because they say, and we've seen this in other cities elsewhere, um, particularly the central city of Hama where allegedly more than 30 people were killed after the monitors came in earlier this week, people in Douma are saying, look, not only are you not keeping the peace, but as soon as you go, we are targeted. And essentially, there are reprisal attacks on the area after the monitors have gone. There was a crowd, a small crowd, which uh, was very vocal. Uh, One man with his finger and the dust on the back of one of the UN cards Put no watch on it, i.e., the monitors weren't, weren't really uh, looking and doing their job, in his opinion. Another one cursed the sisters of, uh, of, of the monitors in very strong language. And one man uh, had a, a very chilling um, statement to make. He said of the monitors, they are coming here, but, but they have no meaning. Uh, they are a pretext to kill, which he means by government forces. When you go out, they will kill us. Uh, if you don't come at all, we will be fine that he was actually saying, look, it's worse when the monitor, of is so tiny if the monitors come because that pulls people out onto the streets they can then be identified by the government and as soon as the monitors leave the government can punish them with an attack now the UN says well we are building up the force as quickly as we can, it has this mandate for 300 members, as they say there are only a, there's only a small fraction of that number on the, the ground at the moment, the UN says the monitors are doing what they can, where they can but it takes time to build up a mission like this because you need not only the, the bodies but also the uh, infrastructure communications equipment, medical supplies and so on.
1: Michael that's, that's- fascinating and invaluable uh, eyewitness stuff from on the ground. Is it possible for you to form an, an overall judgment as to whether violence is increasing or whether the Assad government is in any way meeting its statements to the international community that it's trying to wind things down?
3: Well, the overall daily casualty rate has fallen since the ceasefire came into force two weeks ago. I not think and that's generally accepted. But Still there is a lot of violence in some areas and still people are being killed in, in very significant numbers, very large numbers in some cases. So there were some reports of uh, further deaths in Hama yesterday uh, on the, the news, I haven't actually seen those because we went out early. But... It's quite clear from places I've visited and what other people have reported that, that, that the government hasn't honoured a pledge to withdraw the army from urban areas. I saw a tank in the town of Debedani just down the street from where some people were talking to the monitors and people uh, in both Zebadani and Duma said, you know, look there are tanks which have been you know, hidden away for the monitors' visit. The government says, well security's still there because you know, armed forces are coming under attack and there have been reports of killings by the armed opposition of security forces in the last week or two. But unless and until there is some kind of retreat of of government uh, forces and particularly heavy weapons from these areas, I think it's very hard to see how uh, any kind of um, sustained peace and calm is possible at all. So I think that 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 is going to be a big focus of both the UN mission and, and the international diplomacy now.
1: Thank you very much, Michael, in Syria. Now, to comment on all that, uh, here in the studio in London is James Blitz, our diplomatic editor. James, is there any chance that the UN might actually become more effective and, and avoid some of this backlash that we're hearing about in Syria?
4: Well. The first thing to say is the international community, Western powers are watching what's happening on the ground with a lot of dismay because, as Michael has said, number one, there's no real sign that the Assad forces have returned to barracks as they're supposed to do under the Six-Point Annan plan, and secondly, there's a lot of reprisals happening, especially when people come into contact with the UN monitors. Now, the thing which I think the UN is keen to do and which the US and its allies want to do as quickly as possible is to beef up the number of monitors on the ground. At the moment, as Michael said, there's only about between 11 and 15. The idea was to get 300 there within three months. I think the view now is in the UK, France, US, it's got to be much quicker than that because the more monitors you get on the ground quickly, the evidence is that while they're there, the violence does actually subside. But whether that is going to work is still unclear.
1: And what would Russia and China have to say about that? Would they permit such a large expansion of the UN monitoring force?
4: I don't think Russia and China would have a problem at this point with speeding up the arrival of the 300. I don't think that is a big policy difference that's happening at the UN. Where I think the divisions are going to arise between the Russia and China and the rest is if this isn't going to, if this doesn't work. The next big fixture is the report that Kofi Annan has to make to the UN Security Council on May the 5th. If he comes to the Security Council and says look, this isn't really working, they haven't returned to barracks, there's lots of violence going on, we're seeing the kind of things that have happened in Hamar today, Thursday, then um, there's going to be a lot of pressure to move forward with another UN Security Council resolution, and the idea is there should be a Chapter 7 Security Council resolution. That would potentially authorize the use of force. Now, I don't think anybody thinks that Western powers are actually going to militarily intervene in Syria, but a Chapter 7 Security Council resolution would be a significant new statement by the world powers, by the Security Council, that Syria and the Assad regime are breaching international peace, and it would be the basis for some much tougher action in terms of sanctions banning right to travel and so on. So that's the next stage. But there will be differences between Russia and China and the rest there. And that may well be where the international diplomacy is going. James Blitz, thank you very much indeed.
1: And that's it for this week. My thanks also to Peter Spiegel in Brussels, to Ben Hall in London, and to Michael Peel in Syria. World Weekly is produced by Martin Staber. Till next week. Goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.